and welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're talking to myself, Jaime, and with Carol. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Jaime. Good morning, listeners. And it's nice to be back after a few weeks' break. That's right. How was your break? Excellent. I went to Hobart, which was beautiful. Excellent. Well, um, you're back today, and I'm really glad you're here because uh, today's guest is going to need mo- both of us. Uh, he's a bit of a, of a giant, if I may put it this way. Uh, we're gonna. I'm really thrilled to be talking this morning to... Russell Marks. Um, Russell is an author and a lawyer, and he has written quite extensively for publications such as The Monthly and Overland. And he's also the author of a fantastic book called Crime and Punishment, Offenders and Victims in a Broken Justice System. So, yeah, that's what's, what we're going to do in just a minute after we, um, after we play some reggae music. That I, ha- I just have to get out of my system. How about that, Carol? I look forward to hearing it. Are you a fan of reggae? I was a long time ago. I haven't heard it for years. (laughs) All right, let's try this and see if we like it. All right. Has a pet touched your heart? Pets give us love in times of distress. Sadly, not everyone treats pets with the same love they show us. For decades, the Animal Aid Organisation has cared for Victoria's abused, lost and abandoned pets. They never turn an animal away, but they need your support. Your gift to Animal Aid will give pets a voice and show that you believe every life counts. Give now at any Bendigo bank or online at givethemavoice.org.au. Animal Aid, proudly supported by Bendigo Bank. All right, and before that sponsorship break, you heard a track called Yabi You by Conquering Lion. Um, and you're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. Uh, now, hopefully, we should have our guest on the line, uh, Russell Marks. Russell, are you there? I am, Hani. Hello. Oh, beautiful. Great to uh, be able to talk to you today, Russell. Oh, wonderful to talk to you as well. And welcome from me too, Russell. I'm Carol. Hi, Carol. Hi. Uh, Russell, what's your position on reggae, reggae music? Reggae, um, what do we got, 10cc, bit of Bob Marley. Um, yeah, I'm not big on reggae, but uh, I, I think I think uh, my education's been pretty basic. Well, it's, you, you should be glad you uh, we played that before we got, we got you on, so we don't have to <laughs> inflict it on you, hey? That's, that's oh. perfectly fine. All right, now, um, Russell, I was saying before we got you on that uh, you, I was describing you as a, as a lawyer and as an author. Um, we talked about Crime and Punishment, which I think is a really important book. But um, one of the things that I wanted to do in this interview today was actually to understand a little bit what led you to write in the first place. And, and I thought that the best way to do that would be for you to explain to us a little bit uh, you know, about your early days, your childhood and, and youth, and where you grew up and, and all of those things. So could you start there for us? Well, sure. It's not a very interesting story. Um, I don't think that I'd call myself a writer. I'd call myself maybe someone who has some jobs, a lawyer sometimes and some other jobs some other times, and then I write as kind of a compulsion 
um, on the side. Mm-hmm. So uh, not not very often, but um, when something uh, gets my goat, um, I'll, I'll tend to want to write about it and as a way of perhaps processing it. Um, but I think I've, I've probably always done that. So primary school, um, we were encouraged to, as I think a lot of kids are still, encouraged to kind of come up with some arguments and uh, and put some thoughts down on, for instance, uh, news events or events in the news, um, and then uh, that continues on in high school. And then I, I do know that um, at some point during my undergraduate days at Adelaide Uni, um, I, for some reason I, I chanced upon the student newspaper there, which is called On D, and there were a lot of very long, turgid, um, <laughs> sad, deeply in need of editing um, articles that often span two or three pages, um, just basically me venting my spleen. I'm fairly sure no one read any of them, <laughs> um, and and it's been a it's been a process since then to try and learn how to write so that people can actually read the read the damn thing. Um, so, Russell, was your undergraduate degree in law? Was that the first thing you chose to study? No, I first chose to study commerce, and that was because um, I, my, I was the oldest of the children in my family, and um, my mum didn't... Uh, she was a bit worried that I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 15, so I think the school that I went to pushed a, a kind of careers advisory um, test or something on her. She had to pay a couple of hundred dollars just to commit us to the test and find out what I was going to be. So um, there was a shortage of uh, uh, accountants um, in Adelaide at the time, and uh, pretty much everyone from my school who did that test came out with a recommendation that we should be accountants. So I enrolled dutifully in commerce, and uh, that was not a great fit. Um, so gradually made my way into law and politics. Okay, so um, but did you actually complete that commerce degree? No, I didn't. I, was, I got two-thirds of the way through, and I was, I was about to walk into the, the, the commerce building in Adelaide is over the, over the road, over North Terrace from the rest of the university, and I was about to walk up the stairs into the commerce building for the first day of third year. I think it was a history of accounting three lecture that I was about to attend, and just physically couldn't get up those stairs. <laughs> um, some kind of major mental block that was happening and sat down on the stairs for about half an hour gazed across North Terrace to the, to the arts faculty where I knew that there were no exams and um, eventually got myself enrolled in, in a politics degree they waived the first year so I still haven't done first year politics despite ultimately doing a PhD in it so, uh, and teaching in it but I, I haven't studied it there you go so, um, from politics, you completed that one, I imagine? Uh, yeah, I've got a, yeah, eventually completed the, the politics and law degrees at Adelaide Uni. was never going to be a lawyer. Um, and, and so I uh, moved to Melbourne after that to pursue some journalism, enrolled in a, a journalism degree, um, essentially on a whim after I'd finished the undergrad stuff at... Uh, at Adelaide and went looking for a journalism degree that I could enrol in mid-year 
um, and the only one in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide or Perth that I could find was, was a Latrobe University journalism degree and enrolled in there, packed the car up and drove over um, and, uh, and found myself at, uh, in Bandura in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. There you go. So can I ask you a question then? So before you had graduated, uh, you know, before you started that, that uh, journalism degree, obviously you had been writing on that uh, university publication. Had you done any sort of professional writing by then? Or, you know, had you written any other articles for other places? No, certainly not. It was just mainly some really, really, really long articles for that student newspaper. And there was a... I'd gone on exchange um, to Canada for a semester and met up with a guy who was in the same dorm as I was, and he was into a whole lot of post-structuralist French stuff. And um, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I'd never encountered it before, and um, I started to read some some books by authors that I've now forgotten about and um, <laughs> and came back to Australia and started to want to write like these French post-structuralists and handed up an essay for an international law subject. I was very proud of it. Um, it came back with a 50, which I considered uh, an an abomination and, uh, and, a, and a message to please see me from the lecturer and I, I kind of stormed into her office and demanded an explanation as to why she gave me 50 and she, she said look here's a copy of your essay just open up a page and pick a, pick a paragraph at random and explain to me what it means <laughs> and I did and I did and I, I I stared at that paragraph and I could not explain to her what that paragraph meant so she taught me a very, very valuable lesson, Professor Judith Gardam at um, Adelaide Uni. She said, uh, the purpose of writing is to communicate. There you go. Very fine lesson. Russell, were you um, politically active as a student on campus? I initially wasn't, and then once all my commerce buddies kind of got their three-year degrees left, uh, they, they got their three-year degrees and they left, um, I decided to, to sort of put my toe into student politics um, and I was a member uh, briefly of the Greens political party but there was no Greens uh, sort of student group on campus in the early 2000s so um, I managed to somehow get uh, get myself onto the Labor unity, Labor, right-wing Labor ticket for the student elections and um, to their horror uh, got myself elected from kind of the, the lowest point on that ticket and it caused all sorts of chaos, I think, labour unity in that particular term. There you go. So, um, let's uh, try to, because, you know, I, I, I want to, this is all fascinating, but I, I would like to <laughs> get into some of your, um, your writing. So, when did you land your first sort of professional writing gig? Oh, uh, I sort of, I, I don't think I've ever landed a professional writing gig. Um, I, I think I, I just I just pitch and hope. That's my um, general strategy. And um, after I did my first stint at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and I, I really needed a break from duty lawyering, um, I got a job as the monthly magazine, the monthly online editor. 
yeah. which is hilarious because they put me in charge of their Twitter feed and I really don't understand social media at all. <laughs> um, but I think just because they then sort of got to know me and I had to sort of do a, a kind of daily summary of the political landscape as part of that role, um, I've, I've had a couple of commissioned pieces since then in the magazine um, and and I think that's uh, that's probably the answer to that question. Okay, so uh, well, uh, I think that that is certainly at the beginning of the answer. I, you know, because when we were preparing this interview, I was looking at some of the articles that you have written, and I have to say you have covered a whole range of of topics. Uh, you know, I was thinking obviously you have a bit of an interest in the justice system, and I think hopefully we'll we'll talk a, a little bit about that today. But also there was there's an article about screen time and its role in schools. There's another article about the role of the media. Uh, obviously, you have that latest article on the bank system in in the Northern Territory, and the wonderful article about the Phantom. That's right. Ah. Um, yeah. So, really, the approach hasn't changed since I was at Adelaide Uni. Something kind of piques my interest for a little bit, and um, I feel this kind of burning desire to get something off my chest. So, uh, instead of um, talking ad nauseum to friends about it, I, I seem to want to commit something to paper um, and uh, yeah the, uh, one of the people that I really admire in terms of their writing style is Robert Mann who's now an emeritus professor at Latrobe University I was um, privileged enough to have him as one of my supervisors um, and my other supervisor was Professor Judith Brett um, who's now emeritus professor both of whom are incredible writers in terms of their ability to communicate um, and to synthesise sort of disparate bits of information and to kind of get the, get the, the story down to something that's, um, that's followable and communicable. And um, and I was lucky enough to... I essentially viewed my PhD as a, as a big sort of masterclass for three or four years in being trained how to write. So hold on, R- Russell. Just a second as well. Um, so you um, you have a PhD. I, I do. I do. Um, when I moved to Melbourne and enrolled in the journalism degree, I really didn't know what I. I didn't like that journalism degree and decided to enrol in a PhD instead um, for want of anything better to do. Um, and and found some yeah found some pretty good supervisors. So. What was your topic, Russell? It was. Uh, I got to spend... Th- basically, I got to spend three or four years researching the political history of twentieth century, mid-20th century Australia, um, and I specifically looked at uh, why a group of left-wing, young left-wing political activists in the late 60s and early 70s uh, rejected the, the established left-wing position on Australian nationalism, um, which had been, for much of the 20th century, uh, the left had believed that Australian nationalism was a force for progressive change and for democratic and even socialist change. Um, and so that's where you get the, the myth of the, the kind of battler from Ironbark and um, the, the, the sort of Aussie larrikin type myth that uh, developed. The old developed largely kind of... Oh, the old, that's right. They they sort of adopted 
and adapted the, the bulletin culture of the, eight, the late 19th century to their own political ends um, around the time of the Second World War and beyond. And then there was a group of younger political activists um, that's now called the New Left, or they call themselves the New Left, that emerged around the time of the Vietnam War, and they completely rejected um, the very idea that Australian nationalism could ever be a force for progressive change. They, um, Humphrey McQueen is perhaps one of the best known, or used to be one of the best known of those that group, and he, he wrote a book in 1970 called A New Britannia, and his argument was that Australian national culture was essentially racist, sexist, homophobic, and everything else that was bad. Um, and and that attitude has largely prevailed uh, on the left or among progressives ever since. So I was, I was just interested in what caused that shift on the left in the in the late 60s. Um, you're, you're listening to Matt Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. It is now 20, 20 minutes past nine. And our guest this morning is Russell Marx. Um, so I, from now on, I think I'm going to start describing Russell as well as an annoyingly accomplished uh, man as well. Um, Russell, in that time, it occurs to me that uh, you were somewhat lost as well. I, I mean, apart, you know, you you seem to be doing lots of really interesting things, but you were studying journalism, you were doing your PhD, you were also a lawyer, and at some point, despite your efforts not to practice as a law, you ended up working as a lawyer. Yeah, it's it, it's a challenge. I, I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> well, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us a little bit about becoming a lawyer, because that, that actually, in some ways, I believe, it determined a little bit a lot of your writing as well uh, for quite a, a big chunk of time. Yeah, I had um, I had a couple of teachers in, in primary and high school who suggested that maybe that was a career choice that I, I should think about. Um, and I, I think a lot of kids get told similar things if they have uh, a, a sort of sense of maybe justice and combined with a, a sort of relatively logical way of sifting through evidence. Um, I think a, a lot of kids get pushed into into law that way. And um, certainly when I was reading John Grisham novels in high school, that was something that, that interested me. I was going to be a rainmaker who was going to bring down the tobacco industry. Um <laughs> But uh, at the end, getting towards the end of the PhD and working as an academic, um, academia in Australia, and a lot of smarter people than me have said um, very similar things. It's it's really in a, a kind of crisis at the moment, um, just with the, the way that some of the funding models are set up and the, uh, the kind of open themselves up to market mechanisms um, mm-hmm. and and to sort of administrative reforms within the universities. And I was sort of finding myself doing a lot of data entry type administrative tasks in relation to teaching and and also had been in, sort of involved in this world of ideas where uh, it, it increasingly seemed to me at the time that was cut off from the, the world of either policy on the one hand or from um, sort of real-world concerns that people might have, and that, that was my mindset at the time. So I thought, well, I'll go and do some volunteering at, at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Victoria, and that turned into really enjoying that experience, and I applied for a job and got that and worked for a couple of years as a, as a duty lawyer in, in, in and around Melbourne and Victoria, 
um, working for Val's. That was a, yeah, it was a great job, um, and that was that was how that happened. Uh, and Russell, I mean, in some ways, am I wrong in saying that that was the, I guess the the basis or the foundation from which your book uh, emerged? Yeah, that's that's right. I'd, um, I'd written similar things as undergraduate essays. It's not. A, it's certainly not a new argument that's raised in in that book, Crime and Punishment. Um, very, very many, many people have been saying similar things for thirty or forty years. But um, it was sort of time to uh, to restate those arguments, but um, based on some experiences that uh, I was personally having in and around the magistrates' courts of Victoria, um, and those experiences. Any, anyone really involved in the criminal justice system knows that almost every aspect of the criminal justice system, not only is it not based on evidence, it, it goes against the evidence of... It almost is in diametric opposition to uh, what evidence we do have about what works and what doesn't work to reduce criminal offending or the likelihood of criminal offending. Um, and And... Lucky enough to find a publisher who agreed to to give it a go for a little while. Hmm. Now I definitely want to spend a bit more time talking about this, but I'm also thinking of our listeners. We've been talking uninterrupted for um, over 20 minutes, so I'm gonna play a song for them. And I just want to let our listeners know that all of our songs today are, have been chosen by Russell, and this is uh, some music coming straight from the Northern Territory. So let's listen to this. Northwest FM. Go to awesome events, learn first aid, save the ones you love, meet interesting people, make friends, make someone smile, improve your career, wear a uniform, don't dirty your clothes. We surveyed. People want a uniform. Have a laugh, support your community, improve your mental health, get fit, keep active, do something different with your mates, have a worthwhile life purpose, get off the couch, make news rather than watch it, learn something new, put down the remote, be happier with the life you live. St John Ambulance, join up, it's free. Come on, everyone likes free. Rethinkvolunteering.com. Oh, that was a very lively ad. I'm exhausted. <laughs> now, we just heard uh, The Hunter by Lonely Boys. Russell, do you want to tell us a bit more about that track? Yeah, I'd, um, thanks for playing that. It's uh, the, the Lonely Boys is a group from um, one of the communities up this way. I'm living in Catherine in the Northern Territory now. And Nukur is about four hours' drive east of Catherine, about 700 kilometres southeast of Darwin. Um, and that's where the Lonely Boys uh, come from, and it's a pretty incredible story. They've, they've sort of... Uh, I don't think they actually have instruments at the moment. They were stolen at some point last year, and um, so they, they sort of write music almost in their heads. They get to uh, rehearse when they, whenever they go to Darwin, and they've, um, they've achieved enormous success. They've pretty fantastic music, I have to say. Yeah, and that, that particular song, and mo like most of their songs, is sung in the Creole um, language. It's uh, the most widely spoken language up here, um, and it's infused with a bit of Mara, which is uh, a sort of language more local to...
to uh, the Nuclear area. Um, but yeah, they're, they're pretty amazing people. Great. Russell, I want to talk about, go, go to your time in Catherine uh, in the later section of the interview. But in the meantime, right now, I'd like to continue what we were talking about before, which was the, I guess, the book uh, uh, Crime and Punishment. Um, you know, you said it wasn't a very original argument because lots of people have been saying that. I think the only thing that is not original about the book is the title. Um, but uh, apart from that, I, I, I actually felt it, uh, it really captured and encapsulated a lot of uh, really important issues and it summarized them together and it did so in an extremely compelling way and also using people's real stories um, which was fantastic and, and very useful. So. Just I want I want to learn a little bit about um, how you did that, um, and perhaps if if you could just care to tell us, you know, I mean, give us some of the main talking points in a couple of minutes. Um, said very kind things there, Jaime. Um, crime and punishment was uh, it's basically a, a restatement of an argument, and that's why I said it's not particularly original restatement of an argument that's been made by criminal justice reformers for a very long time, which is that if the main problem that we're trying to solve is criminal behaviour, then there are certain things that work and there are certain things that don't work. We know prison doesn't generally work to stop an individual committing criminal offences. In fact, um, all other things being equal, spending time in prison is one of the things that's, uh, that contributes to future criminal offending. Um, on the other hand, uh, sometimes there's, there's not much alternative to putting someone in prison if they're kind of committing a lot of violent offences or, or very violent offences, then um, maybe they do need to, to kind of spend some time uh, in, a, you know, in, in lock-up so that they don't continue to hurt other people. But um, most of the people in Australian prisons now are people that, uh, in my view, don't need to be there um, and uh, and we're spending a lot of money keeping them there. It costs, um, what is it, I forget the figures now. But it's $100,000 per person per year for an adult in Victoria. Um, for uh, young people, I think that figure is up to $170,000 a year. That yeah. sounds about right, and and one can only imagine what would be done if we were to sort of put that money into uh, community-based rehabilitation or preventative programs. Um, and one of the big examples of uh, the, the whole the movement is now called justice reinvestment, um, mm -hmm. where you you take some money that was earmarked to spend on prisons, which are, are very expensive and they don't do very much in terms of rehabilitation and prevention. And you take that money out of prisons and you put them into community-based programs, um, which can be, you know, from birth or pre-birth. Um, we know a lot about the criminogenic factors that influence people's criminal behaviour now. And if we target those factors with well-placed well programs, well-resourced programs, which is a really important uh, thing from birth right through education system um, and, and right through into um, sort of early adulthood, then 
we can have much better effects in terms of stopping people's criminal behaviour. Um, the big the big example at the moment in justice reinvestment is, of course, uh, the state of Texas in the United States. Mm-hmm. They um, they were uh, about to open another couple of prisons back in I think it was 2007, and the the Republicans were in power in Texas and on a purely economic basis, they said, no, we can't continue to open more prisons. This is ridiculous. We're having one in three black men um, incarcerated and the crime rate's not going down, in fact, it's going up. So, uh, and, and so they implemented a justice reinvestment approach um, purely on economic lines. Uh, the result of that is that they've subsequently closed a number of prisons and the crime rate's falling. Um, so... Uh, there's a knee-jerk response to violent crimes all the time, which is look, we just need tougher sentences and longer sentences and tougher conditions in prison. And, it, and the evidence shows time and time again that it doesn't work. It has the opposite effect. Russell, um, you, you also, in your book, you make a really important argument. Um, you talk about, the, I guess, the paradigm of choice, choice and punishment, right? So you, you make bad, choice, bad choices and then you have to pay for that. Um, and I guess what's really interesting for me, given the line of work that I am in, is when we understand that a lot of the evidence nowadays is telling us that when children are exposed to complex trauma, um, really, a lot of the times they don't have any choice uh, in terms of their behaviors. And particularly when our actions and our approach to them is not uh, trauma-informed, uh, quite often we, it's almost like we're pu- putting young people and adults in a corner um, and then, you know, we're expecting them to do something different. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a, a really important argument for me of, of your book. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and sort of every, almost every month that goes by, we, know, we learn more and more about um, the role that trauma plays, childhood trauma, pre, um, sort of prenatal trauma, childhood trauma, adolescent trauma, um, ongoing trauma plays in the... Uh, decision, I'll loosely use that term, of someone to begin committing criminal behaviour. Um, and as you say, it's often not a decision. It's a, it's a response to often very complex trauma. Um, trauma that luckily, actually, I um, didn't experience growing up and, and, uh, and so I, I live a pretty comfortable life. Um, not saying, of course, that everybody who does experience trauma goes on to commit criminal offences, but mm. it's, the, it's the one thing that you, you look into the background of everyone who's in prison in Australia now um, for a, a kind of violent crime or a, a crime against another person, and um, it, it is surprising when you don't find a background of pretty severe complex trauma and neglect. Um, and while we continue to ignore this pretty central fact in criminal behaviour, we'll continue to get it wrong because prison is is heaping trauma upon trauma. Russell, um, the, the other argument that you make in the book, which is quite interesting, is you say, look, in Victoria, we're actually doing quite well on a number of fronts and, and certainly the Victorian governments, um, previous Victorian governments, have implemented some really fantastic reforms that have made the situation better. Um, but at the same time, there's al- always this sort of dual... Um, I don't know, maybe it's cognitive dissonance or something like that, where 
politicians they might be doing some things in the right direction but when they talk they they play a very different message yeah it's a it's a shame and victorian victorian um justice system has taken some pretty drastic turns in the last year or two particularly in relation to youth justice um victoria was seen by itself and by the rest of the country as a kind of leading light in the way that it dealt with young people who commit crimes. It was beginning to develop a, a trauma-informed model. Um, certainly hadn't gone very far down that track, but it was moving in that direction. And then um, and then certain... Uh, well, certain things happened, and, and there were largely administrative problems at the beginning within the youth justice system in Victoria, and particularly the youth detention centres at Parkville and Malmesbury, they created some staffing issues, some staff shortages, um, and the, the administrative response to, to those issues was to sort of send the kids into increasing uh, increasing time in solitary confinement and lockdown. Um, and then what we know from all around the world is that when you have that sort of situation developing, what you're going to get is a kind of prison riot, and that's what uh, that's what. The, the Melbourne Youth Detention Centres saw um, for, for much of 2016 and 2017, and then there's a. It, it's very difficult for uh, governments who are in power to resist the public demand, and the public demand was coming thick and fast from the Herald Sun um, to crack down on these these young villains who are terrorising uh, the youth justice or the staff in the youth justice systems. And, And let's go. Let's go to your personal story for a second. So obviously, you had written that book. You had become a bit of a. I'm not going to say an authority on this, but quite well known. Um, and then you wrote that article on the on this crisis. Was that something that the monthly asked you to do, or did you pitch that as well? I, to be honest, might have been a bit of both. Um, there might have just been a conversation that I was having with the editor, and uh, something needed to be written. There was a lot of very good journalism happening um, from. Uh, a few journalists at the Guardian and the and the Age, and um, you know, and but that was sort of day by day, blow by blow journalism, and there there really needed to be something that pulled all that together, um, like I I think Robert Mann does very well. He's a very good synthesizer of of a story a story that's kind of been in the news, but no one sort of put it all together and explained it all. So that was the role that the monthly um, decided that it needed to take in relation to that particular crisis. And and so we put uh, an article together um, which uh, sought to explain the crisis in terms of how it developed and then so how that, the government that was responded. That was the article called Call for Backup, I believe. Um, yes. I think that if people are only reading one of your articles in the monthly, I have to say that must be the one because uh, I thought it was pretty fantastic and in terms of doing exactly what you said, just summarizing a very complex issue, trying to look at it uh, in a very objective light. And you know, um, I'm not the only one who thinks that way because uh, recently we had a visit from Liana Buchanan who's the Commissioner for Children and Young People and she came to visit our community center. And we were talking about this, and when I mentioned your article, uh, she couldn't agree more. So, you know, I'm not the only one who thinks that way. Uh, Leanna was very generous in um, giving some time up to be interviewed for that for that piece, and um, 
she had a particularly tough job around that time. Um, yes. All right, um, Russell, time for uh, another music track, and we're going to continue um, our little journey north. Uh, we're going to play another track that you suggested from from the Northern Territory, okay? I believe. Anyway, you tell us, tell me if I'm wrong after uh, after we play it. No worries. Living free to respect the wonders of flowers, beast and bird While legends told of long ago were always to be heard Yes, they were part of this vast Remember as a child playing on the merry-go-round Your head whirling as you stepped off Staggering to the side and falling to the ground? That's what it feels like when you said help is available if you suffer from dizziness, vertigo, ringing in your ears or other balance issues. You don't have to suffer alone. Contact World Foundation. That's spelled W-H-I-R-L-E-D, as in whirling around. Call 1300 368 818 or visit worldfoundation.org. Back with Mad Village here, we're talking to Russell Marks, and we just played a track by an artist named Bobby McLeod that was selected by Russell. Uh, Russell, can you tell us a bit about Bobby and how you came to know about that track? Uh, yeah, so Bobby he wasn't from the Northern Territory. Sorry, Jaime. Oh, there um, you go. He, Got it wrong. He was, he, was, um, he was a New South Wales uh, Aboriginal man um, from the Red Bay Village area, Chavez Bay Territory, and... Um, he had a he had a very um, rich and interesting life. Um, went to uh, he was the son of the first I think, Aboriginal Skyfentry magistrate. Went to prison for an assault, um, and then wrote that song "Way with Dreams" uh, after attending the funeral on day release. Um, and he was later uh, later involved in the tent embassy. Um, on the lawns of Parliament House and uh, ultimately arrested one of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs administrators at gunpoint at one point in his life. He, he, had, a, he had a fascinating life. Thank you. Great. Russell, um, all very interesting um, cho- choices and they have expanded our music knowledge a little bit, which is great. Now... Um, we don't have a lot of time left. We only have about five minutes of the show left. And I'd like to cover a little bit uh, the current work that you're doing up north. Um, and, and perhaps um, could you start by telling us why you decided to move up there? Up there? Um, yeah, it's, it's warmer. But no, the, <laughs> the, the, actual, the actual reason is um, there was... Uh, I'd, I'd always wanted to come up here. I'd, I'd read a lot. I'd written a lot. I'd, I'd sort of been interested for a very long time in um, the, the politics of the North in Australia um, and uh, issues of which are, are kind of front and centre or becoming much more front and centre now, um, issues of you know, how, how do we solve the sovereignty crisis at the heart of, of Australian constitutional democracy? How do we solve... Um, the, the lingering colonial disputes 
how do we solve the issue of land, these kind of fundamental questions. Um, and we're better to kind of get some first-hand knowledge and experience of what's going on at the moment than to move up here for a bit and um, observe what's going on. Because it's very easy to, I think, forget when we're in places like Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide, um, which have been thoroughly colonised. But um, this land is somebody else's land, and uh, that's not easy to forget up here. Um, the, the, the colonial project is well and truly still underway up here, and, and all of the arguments that were made in crime and punishment in relation to the criminal justice system apply tenfold up here um, because there's the additional element of culture and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating on a personal level and hugely challenging um, both personally and professionally but, but also uh, there's this massive challenge to the Australian nation that's constitution that's on at the moment um, I thoroughly recommend on that point Mark McKenna's latest quarterly essay. Um, Sorry, Russell, I, I believe we're starting to lose you. Are you still there? Oh, I'm still there. Can oh. you hear me now? Yeah, I'm much better now. Thank you. Yeah, um, Yeah. sorry, I was just just waxing lyrical about Mark McKenna's quarterly essay, Moment of Truth. Okay. Um, and if, if there's one sort of current uh, currently released sort of introduction to the questions um, that that should be front and centre in our political debates and our political system at the moment. It's it's that it's that essay by Mike McKenna. So I recommend that one. Great. So what? Tell us a little bit about your a day in your work. And I imagine um, so there won't be a typical day. Uh, well, it, I'm I'm working for the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, NAJA. Um, which, uh, and I'm working as a criminal lawyer again, um, and and working uh, on behalf of people charged with Aboriginal people uh, in and around the Catherine area charged with criminal offences by police. It's a, it's it's a massively over policed area of the country. This one, it's very difficult to drive down streets of Catherine without seeing a police vehicle or 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 uh, and or an arrest even. They're pretty common to witness on a daily basis, um, and uh, just the um, the sheer effort by the state to um, to to and and you've caught me caught me on the hop because I'm still uh, I'm still kind of working out what I think about um, what's going on up here. But, uh, there is a massive effort by the state, both in terms of its policing and its, uh, and the child protection authorities up here are, are, are still pretty intent on removing Aboriginal children at the rate of knots. Um, the, the, the best I've come up with so far is that the colonial project is still well and truly, um, well and truly underway. Russell, I wanted to ask you. So I have spent that fair bit of time working with young people who are involved with the justice system and every time I go to court um, one thing that um, can't get out of my mind is how foreign this court system must look from the point of view of a young person first of all the language is completely 
uh, incomprehensible. Um, young people, you know, everyone is talking about them, but nobody is really talking to them. Um, I imagine that that would be exas exacerbated a million times if you're working in the Northern Territory with Aboriginal people. Absolutely. The people's, um, people's English is uh, sometimes very good, but more often than not, pretty broken. Um, and that's less a deficiency uh, of, of, of those particular people as individuals and much more a deficiency of uh, a combination of the education systems that are in place up here which um, expel people from high school uh, very, very quickly and also um, a, a sort of resistance on the part of the courts to... Um, to adapt to service uh, the, the kind of cultural and linguistic populations up here. Um, there is an interpreter service that's now available, but most of the um, most of the innovations that have been tried in places like Victoria and New South Wales and South Australia have yet to find their way into the Northern Territory criminal justice system, um, and it is a very alienating experience for most of the people, including victims, defendants, witnesses, um, who are, are sort of pulled through it, uh, often well and truly against their will. Um, and it's, it's, it's not a situation where there's a simple answer. Um, no one can wave a magic wand and say, this should be better in this way, but uh, we, can, we can certainly adopt some of what we do know in terms of what the evidence shows us and, and we can adopt them in the Northern Territory and, uh, and we, just, we just haven't done that yet. Now, my friend, I'm afraid we, we have run out of time. One uh, quick question before yes. we let you go, Russell. Do you still have time to do some writing with this new job of yours? Uh, not much time, but there, there's, if, if I have to, there's, there's, I do continue to make pictures um, and uh, on the off chance that one of them gets up, then I have to make time. Um, <laughs> dead, deadlines are very good things. Mm. Great. Listen, it's been an enormous pleasure to talk to you, and we, we thank you for taking time out to spend time with a, with a very humble community radio station. So really, really appreciate that. You guys do great work. Always happy to, to be part of that, and, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me. All right. Thank you very much, Russell. Thanks, Russell. And that was uh, Russell Marks uh, talking to us from Catherine in the Northern Territory. We're going to leave you with his last uh, choice for the day, and that's Paul Kelly, Little Kings. All right. See you all next week. Bye. Thanks, Carol. <laughs>